1: Konnichiwa, no Hiro.
2: Welcome to the Fish Nerds. It's a celebration of fish, fishing, and eating fish that is always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Joe Tomolari from Just Mexicanas, and here are the nerds.
0: I'm Clay Groves, chief executive fish nerds uh, of the (laughs) Nerds Podcast.
1: (laughs) And I'm Ben Cantrell, microfisher and occasional dumbass.
0: Occasional. You know, I think if you're going to be a dumbass, occasional is the way to go.
1: Yeah, I'm not committed to it yet. Yeah,
0: and for those who don't know Ben, Ben is world famous for his uh, fishing adventures. He's a species angler. Uh, ben, where are you from? Illinois. Illinois. But your name comes up everywhere I go. Uh, but before we get into, like, while you are a household nerd name, uh, you you wanted to be on the show because you wanted to talk about um, the dangers of your uh, adventures.
1: Yes. Yes. I have a story to tell. I It's just been eating enough that the the world has not heard it yet. And so I think the time is right.
0: Well, now um, tens of people will hear your story.
1: Okay. Okay. So here goes. Um, There's not going to be too much backstory. Uh, I went to Peru on a fishing trip. It was wonderful. Wait a
0: minute. You got to go to Peru Uh, on a fishing trip? Yes. Yeah. What planet are we on where that's a thing?
1: It it actually wasn't that expensive, to be honest. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Um. there's a place down there, uh, Otorongo Adventures, um, uh, that you can go stay at for a week, and they and uh, you can go out fishing every day in the Amazon, piranhas, catfish, you name it. Do you have kids, Ben? No.
0: There, there's why you can afford to do this. Yes. Yeah. Ma- yeah maintain that lifestyle of no kids, and you can fish all you want.
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're down there having a great time, uh, and uh, we're out in these... Uh, uh, real small uh, three-person boats, a little bit bigger than a canoe um, at night, and we're fishing for catfish, okay? Um, what, what kind we, of
0: catfish do you catch down
1: there? There's hundreds and hundreds. Really? Um, and there's really... You can't target any one kind. It's You just throw cut bait in there, and whatever bites is whatever bites. Anyway, we're, uh, we're tied up um, to the bank on a, a tributary of the Amazon, uh, real swift water We're soaking baits, and uh, I hook into a, a, um, what's it called, a tiger shovel nose catfish, which is a really exciting catch. Everyone in the group wanted to get one. And mine wasn't big. It was, you know, 24 inches or something.
0: Big enough.
1: Well, here's the thing. So I pull it out of the water, and I've got my camera in one hand, and I got the fish in the other hand, and I'm like, gosh, this fish is too small to have my buddy take my picture. Oh, God. You know, because... I, you know, I don't have people take photos of me holding microfish. I just hold them out and photograph them you know, in a hand. So I decide that's what this fish, you know, what I have to do. Um, well, I don't want it laying across. 20,
0: 24 inches is, is not a microfish.
1: Well, it, <laughs> I knew they'd get a lot bigger. So I didn't want to take a photo of the fish, like, laying across my knees or something because it uh, looked bad. So I stood up in this tiny boat. And I held out the fish as far as I could in front of me. And then I held my camera like back behind my right ear. So it was as far away from the fish as possible so that I can get all 24 inches into the frame. Oh (laughs) And uh, that's when I feel the boat start to tip. And uh, you know, I bend my knees, I lean forward. I'm like, okay, I got this. Uh And the boat tips more. And I'm like, all right, all right. I'm really going to have to like fall forward. And then All of a sudden, there's that moment of realization where you're just like, crap, I'm going in.
0: (laughs) Nothing you can do about it.
1: So I wiped it out backwards, um, head first into the water. (laughs) Uh, Instinct kicked in, and I kung fu gripped my camera, Uh and I kung fu gripped the catfish. So I lost neither of them. Good. (laughs) But my ankle caught on the edge of the boat, and my head was underwater. That's bad. It was in the middle of the night in this muddy river. So I reach up to free my ankle from the edge of the boat, and I use the catfish hand.
0: With So you had the catfish, and you grab your ankle with a catfish in your hand still.
1: And I drive the catfish's pectoral spine straight into my leg. Uh,
0: now, most catfish have very hard, sharp pectoral spines. Is there venom in this one?
1: Um, I don't think they're venomous. I, I think a lot of catfish have um, a big uh, colony of bacteria on their spines. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, um, it was serrated, though.
0: Oh, good. <laughs>
1: so uh, I, I, I'm able to to scramble to shore. We were tied off right near shore, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, and I stand up, and um, one of the guys in the boats is like, did it sting you? Did it sting you? <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't worry. It didn't sting me. And he points down and the catfish is just hanging off my leg.
0: Oh, just like dangling there. Oh, my
1: God. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it did. Oh, did you take um, a picture? Well, I got a picture of the fish. Yeah. So, but you didn't get a uh, picture of it
0: hanging out of your leg.
1: No. Shame on um, you. Next time. Sorry.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so so he reaches down and grabs me. He goes, all right, on the count of three: one, two, and just, you know, yanks it out. Oh, my God. Before he gets to three.
0: <laughs> How'd that okay. Like-
1: well, at the time I didn't even know it was there. So right. um so anyway, uh we get back that night, um, you know, I'm soaking wet, we change clothes and everything, and my wound doesn't look too bad, it's a small puncture. And uh the the guy who owns the lodge there, he asked the guy in the boat, he said, um, did the spine break off in it? And he said no. Oh. That's the thing. So Fast forward, I went six weeks thinking there was no spine in my leg.
0: That's a long time.
1: And the wound got horribly infection. I did three different weeks on three different antibiotics. Um, basically, my, a spot on my leg like the size of an apple you know, looks like a zombie. Oh, God. Um, and then finally, I wake up one morning with a really sharp pain, and it's on the other side of my leg.
0: It hurt all so. the way through.
1: And so I feel down there and there's something poking from the inside of my skin trying to come out. Oh, man. So I got in surgery the very next day. They just made a little incision, pulled it out. It was about an inch and a half long, a little serrated spine.
0: Did you get to keep it?
1: My insurance company has it.
0: Oh, man. It's too bad because like, you make a necklace but, out of that or something. It'd be awesome.
1: Yeah. I'm supposed to get it back. Um. <laughs> They have to examine any foreign objects that are removed from people. <laughs> you'll, that's, ne-
0: you'll never get it back.
1: <laughs> that.
0: Oh, that's horrible!
1: But kind of awesome, right?
0: Really awesome. I mean, that's the fish that almost killed you. Yeah, like you could have got, got septic or something, or really some terrible stuff can happen from that. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, it's kind of eye-opening. Be careful out there, listeners.
0: <laughs> so, so the moral of the story: if you're fishing in Peru. That's where you were. Just right?
1: hand just hand your damn camera to your buddy and have him take a picture of your tiny fish.
0: Oh, I was gonna say if you know if you fall in the water, let go of the fish. <laughs> but, oh yeah, that too. So did you eat the fish or let it go afterwards? Oh yeah. You did. Yeah, we it was delicious. So it's part of your healing process. You know that Oh yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And so while you were down there, how many species did you pick up?
1: Um a few over fifty, like fifty one or fifty two.
0: And And for those who don't know you and you are pretty popular in the in the uh species fishing world, how many species have you caught so far?
1: I just broke through four hundred and amazing. it was on on that trip broke me through four hundred
0: That's an amazing amount of fish and, and where are you from again
1: uh central illinois
0: and how many species of fish live in illinois
1: uh a little under two hundred I think
0: and Have you caught all of your local fish
1: no I've only caught like two thirds of them maybe
0: really, so you have a like, local list you can keep working on.
1: Yeah, actually um the Mississippi River is really intimidating. There's there's a lot of fish that are out in the main current that I just I've never seen. Oh, it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> I
0: I'm, I'm always so jealous cuz you know this story. I am always in New Hampshire we have, we have 48 species of fish here. Right. And which is easy compared to what you're doing. And I hear about Midwestern species of fish and there's like 200, 300, 600 in some places and you're like, "Wow, my god, like the diversity is unbelievable." So you're a species fisherman, uh, and for those who don't know, you want to explain what that means?
1: Yeah, so I just uh, keep a life list of all the fish that I've caught on hook and line. Um, It's the same as uh, birders who keep track of all the birds they've seen, uh, except for it's a little more interactive because I actually have to catch the fish.
0: Oh, can you imagine Uh, if the birders had to catch the birds?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, didn't uh, Audubon or or whoever basically shoot? Shoot one of everything.
0: Yeah, and that's the original way of collecting birds was by killing them. Even even uh, Darwin did that. Like when you there were you going go. on these on these trips and you were learning about new species, you would kill the first example of each species you find, and that would be what you brought back as your data collection. Right. And there have been times where, like, um, these people have killed a bird, and it was the only time that bird's ever been seen. So That's messed up. They killed the only example of these birds. Yeah, which is really messed up. Last week we uh, were talking about a New York Times article that came out was talking about um, removing the Penobscot dams in the Penobscot River in Maine, and one of our listeners called in and wanted to know uh, what they were doing to prevent invasive species from moving through the water system as the dams were removed. So I called Joseph. This is gonna be hard for me, Joseph. Zidelsky, a research biologist with the Maine Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit uh, of the United States Geological Survey, and asked him what we do about this. And so I did an interview with him, and here is that story.
3: Uh, Joe Zidelsky, I'm in an interesting position because I am a a federal employee with uh, USGS, Mm -hmm. and uh, my uh, I'm in a, a sort of a, a rear uh position. There's uh over a hundred of us across the country who are USGS employees, but we get to work at universities. So um I'm also uh on faculty in the uh University of Maine in the Department of Uh Wildlife Fisheries and Conservation Biology. Oh, that's and so, so it's cool. sort of a yeah, it's a very interesting uh, duality, and uh, oftentimes you get the best of both uh, both uh, connections, and sometimes uh, the the downsides of both, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, as I like to tell people, I get paid to play with fish.
4: So, so you, you're working on the dam removal project on the Penobscot River.
3: Sure, sure. And I should say that I'm I'm not involved with the the dam removal. Mm-hmm. But I am involved with the, the assessment. So, uh, the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, which, uh, was formed, uh, as you're probably aware by, um, a group of agencies and, uh, NGOs, uh, who, uh, organized, uh, the, the removal. And a lot of the funding came from, uh, both private as well as, uh, federal sources for the removals. In part of that, uh, included the forethought to do some pre and post comparisons uh, one of the things that 's often really hard for a project uh like that is to put together the money to accomplish the task mm-hmm. and not really take the time to think afterwards. you know years later, are we going to have the information to say well it it did that it didn 't do that and really gauge. Uh was it was it a good thing to do? Was it a, a smart thing to do based on what the objectives were?
4: Right. And there was one thing to blow a dam up and it was another to measure the results afterwards really. Sure. We're talking about if I'm simplifying it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
3: That's the reader's digest version for sure.
4: Yeah, exactly. So uh and and so um when did the dam come out?
3: A couple of years ago? Uh twelve and thirteen. So uh it had uh, two dams there. Uh when you look at the Penobscot River, there's uh an interesting uh sequence of dams as you come in. Yeah, I always look at it from the perspective of a fish returning to the river, but if you imagine swimming upstream, the first dam you would have uh hit was VZ Dam. Mm-hmm. The river. Um, I should know right off the top of my head, but we're looking at about 45 kilometers, and I'd have okay. to do the math to convert that. Um, but we're we're looking at uh over the course of, you know, 15 or 20 kilometers, you had Vesey Dam, then you had Great Works Dam, and uh then you have uh, Milford Dam. Mm-hmm. And so that one, two, three of dams right in a row low in the river Really made it hard for a lot of migratory fishes to to survive.
4: Right, and we know those when they build those, it crashes the populations of especially the salmon, just crash, and then the shad and herring go somewhere else, and the sea rays, you know, figure <laughs> figure it out. But um, so when they took the dams out, and the fish came rushing back. Was it right away, or was it a couple of years of a lag?
3: Well, you know, we're still, uh, you know, we're still in the. Um, the early phases uh if you will you know the uh um if we you, you got to think about this in terms of how long these fish live
4: right
3: and so for uh if we look at an atlantic salmon and an atlantic salmon can spend uh 1 to 5 years in fresh water and then spend 1 to 3 years in salt water before it even comes back mm-hmm. so even even if all things were were simply solved, if the the magic wand was passed over and fish were uh simply um, freed by having access to habitat many years before populations respond, now, I will say that one of the most conspicuous changes has been the return of alwives uh so um uh nearly um uh, i th- I think the the number is somewhere over uh a million and a half alwi uh were counted at the milford dam so the the reason that was though was because there were two things that happened to make uh make that come to be. one was clearly the dam removals have uh, a big effect in terms of providing that connectivity and I should say that it was uh the main department of Marine resources that really was proactive. In the second component, which was to look ahead and identify where are the places within the watershed where, uh, owlwife can be, uh, really, uh, productive and actively stocked, uh, before the dams were removed, uh, owlwife throughout the, those areas. And what you saw was those two things coming together. The, the product of those fish, uh, spawning, and they're young going out to sea, and then when they came back in three and four and five years to be able to uh, have a bit of a free pass through the area and the river that they were normally stopped at.
4: It's great to see. Now, I saw up in Merrimack River, where I do a lot of work, the yep. the herring um, population in the last three years have been through the roof, and they haven't made any damn changes um, on that river. So is it possible some of the returns have been just, you know, a big population bump anyway?
3: Yeah. uh, You know, this is one of the things with biology is, uh, you know, we often talk about physics envy, right? You know, uh, where you have really clear signals that you can uh, take apart. But a a lot of fisheries and and wildlife science is, is geared at trying to understand longer trends Mm-hmm. and to um and to uh piece apart these uh these general um effects, and so there's definitely year to year effects there's definitely productivity in the ocean that can uh, have a big effect, but there's nothing that uh can take away from the clear connection between opening up the habitat and having uh actively restored them to some of these lakes because uh, these fish uh, do have some uh, some uh, fidelity to where they uh, were spawned. So you
4: do have that, that that river memory. I wasn't sure about that. That's yeah. I... Now, one of the questions that came in from one of our listeners, he's a fishing guide on the Penobscot River up in Bangor. Yep. And I think it was Richard Yvonne.
3: Now I'm nervous. Now I'm nervous. Ah, okay. Because
4: well, you know, the guides are always people who work on the rivers. Always have a different point of view than the biologists and the Fishing game type people. And so he's a guide up there, and he's wondering um, how how's taking the dams out predatory species that are invasive, like northern pike, for example, who don't belong in those rivers, who are there. You take the dam out, now the pike have free reign on the whole river. How's, what, what, what's taking the dams out, Happening with those guys, and what are people doing to mitigate that problem?
3: Sure, sure. And I, I think one of the things uh, for those who are more – uh, familiar with the, the river itself, um, Northern Pike are actually in, uh, Pushaw Lake at this time. Mm-hmm. And they have access to the Penobscot River up above Milford Dam. So, uh, the removal of those two lowermost dams isn't going to do anything in terms of the, the near-term access that those mm-hmm. fish have to the main stem. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I'll point out is that upstream, there's another dam which the, uh, the impoundment is still there,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but a, uh, a nature-like fishway was put in place.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh, at the time right now, one of the things that's been done is that, um, uh, a, uh, an additional jump has been imposed at the next upstream dam. Yes. make it harder for potential invasives to come up. A couple things that I'd mentioned, though is number 1 is that um uh you know they, the main way that invasive species get in is not through this uh natural uh movement or movement through fishways. Uh-huh. Uh so for for northern pike um, there's work in uh, in Canada that's really demonstrated that most of their movements are taking place in, uh, in April. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, in that operation, the dams really comes at the tail end of when they'd be moving. And yep. so uh, the probability of them using a fishway is fairly low. If we're looking at moving upstream at Milford Dam, there is a trap there. And they operated, and there is some ability to to remove fish uh so that are the, captured there
4: does the milk dam have a is it a fish ladder or a fish elevator system or a combination
3: it's a it's a fish lift uh-huh and so uh there's uh there's a hopper that uh, the fish come into down at the base of the dam they get lifted up into a long flume uh several hundred uh feet, and uh those fish then are uh handled a uh, second time and another hopper. And so there's some opportunity to identify what's in there. Now, you
4: know, I've done some fish counting and trapping in Lawrence, Massachusetts, at their list. Right. It's now, a crazy process.
3: <laughs> yeah. When you get a few hundred thousand fish going through, mm-hmm. that starts to get difficult.
4: I can imagine.
3: <laughs> so, uh, so there's there's that. So one is one point is is that, northern pike are already in the upper part of the the waters and have access the second part is that uh operation of fishways uh doesn't doesn't really easily allow northern pike to move up just because of their timing and the third one which is an interesting one uh that i'm uh really appreciate is the degree to which we view things as invasive or not
4: mm-hmm. um
3: and so uh uh, there's a fantastic smallmouth bass fishery in the Penobscot River.
4: Yes, and,
3: uh, and depending who you speak with, when you call those an invasive, even though that they were stocked in the late 1800s and have really taken over the river, that, uh, that can be hard for people to hear that the fish that's near and dear to their heart is actually an invasive. Well, I'm uh, with you on and, that one.
4: I've always made that case um that most of our game fish in New England are technically invasive fish <laughs> yeah
3: yeah yeah so uh and and i guess the the last thing that i will add is that one of the things uh you, you have both the predators who are there but you also have by bringing in uh the connectivity for the fish like albwife and for american shad which we haven't even talked about yet which is one of my favorites Love it. uh is uh is your you have this huge huge biomass of uh of potential prey coming in so i think there's a lot of reason to think that um a lot of these predators will do fairly well uh with uh, that added uh prey base basically prey base just being they have things to eat
4: that makes sense to me i was uh, we were talking to um, dr peter Moyle a few weeks ago and he's making a case that after a while we might want to consider calling a basic species, you know, just species of that local watershed because they've been here so long and they adapt and you're not going to get rid of them.
3: And well, and there's a term for that, too. Uh, that's uh, just uh, calling it a feral species.
4: That's right, yeah. So that's way cool. Well, um, so are there more dams coming out in the future on the Penobscot or have you got kind of max out what you can do in the short term?
3: Well, I, I think, uh, again, because I'm not uh, not – uh, pulling the, uh, the strings in terms of what large scale decisions are made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, uh, I don't know, uh, exactly what will be in the mix in the future. I, uh, usually the, the process by which decisions for either changing fish passage or, uh, or modifications or, uh, large scale changes like we saw with the Penobscot River Restoration Project. Those are often spurred on by um uh fork relicensing, so the <laughs> the uh Federal Energy uh Regulatory Commission. And the you know new all through New England, including um you know the Penobscot River, there's lots of dams that have these long term licenses, you know, mm-hmm. thirty, forty, fifty years that that come up. And so when those Licenses come up. Those are the opportunities for, uh, regulating, uh, agencies to have, have a conversation with the operators about what the status is for the dam, for the operation, for fish passage, and, uh, hopefully work together productively to come up with solutions.
4: For those of us who follow along, I'm loving watching to see what happens. I'd love to see the return of the sturgeon coming up and all kinds of other fish that
3: we haven't seen in years. So it's
4: really oh, yeah,
3: fun. yeah. So the short those I'm sorry, you got me too excited there. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, having a short nosed surge and move up past where the the old VZ dam uh, was was uh, was a huge thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. So hey,
4: I, I got to get going, but um, I appreciate your time today and um, and great information and and thank you so much.
3: All right. Hey, take right. care. Good to talk to you. Hey,
0: thank you. All right. So Ben, let's talk about micro fishing. Yes, let's. Uh, yeah, last week, I'm, I'm at work, and I work at a school, and everyone's walking by and going, Hey, Clay, have you ever heard of microfishing? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And then 10 minutes later, someone walks by, Clay, have you heard about microfishing? And it's everywhere. Everywhere I turn, someone's saying, Hey, Clay, have you heard about microfishing? Because everyone is listening to NPR, and on Morning Edition, there was a story about microfishing, and guess who was on it? You. Was it me? You're fish famous. And then I get emails from people around the country who are part of the podcast going, Hey, Ben Ben was on the radio. Did you hear Ben on the radio? And so I thought, boy, this is really cool. So can you tell us what, what that's all about?
1: Yeah, this is really crazy. It came completely out of nowhere. Awesome. Um <laughs> so so we have a micro fishing uh Facebook group, you know, similar to the the fish nerds one. Um And we got a a private message on there from a guy in Missouri and he's like, Hey, would one of you guys do an interview? Um, It'll be just on a local radio station. um, uh, (laughs) Yeah. In in central Missouri. Um, So I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, And so, so I did an interview with him and you can Google search it and find it. Um, It just aired on one local NPR station in Missouri. Um, But I guess uh, editors, you know, Caught wind of it, heard it, liked it, and they said, Hey, we need to, you know, record it again, make it a little more interesting, more people I guess I wasn't enough. No. Um <laughs> and and so we redid the interview and it, it went national.
0: It went on, on NPR and it was on Morning Edition and there'll be a link at Fishners dot com so people can hear it. Um but it's crazy. It was a good story. Uh but did you feel like they were a little bit late to the uh banquet on this? <laughs> Yeah, we've been doing this for years. I know. That's what I've been, you know, everyone's like, Clay, have you heard of this new thing? I'm like, yeah, it's not that new. You know, this new thing called Disco. <laughs> it's been around a long time. But um, I, I'll give you guys credit. I mean, the microfishing community really did give it a name. Uh, it, You know, Dave and I were doing it before we knew what it was called. And it was only through our quest to catch all the fish that we found microfishing and found a name for the stuff we were doing. And learned about species anglers like you, but I mean, pretty great press. Now, did you get a lot of attention afterwards?
1: Yeah, you know, I heard from a few people that I heard you on the radio this morning. Um, We got a lot of questions to the Facebook group from people, you know, who had never fished in their life and wanted to know about know more about it. So it was kind of a interesting week for microfishing outreach I guess.
0: I think it's really great. And and it actually a new way of, of looking at fish and for for me, uh someone who is a species person, uh to get attention to the diversity of fishes is really important. And so like the work you guys do at microfishing is critical I think in that because like I you know, and we all love seeing bass pictures. But uh you know, a rainbow darter way prettier than a bass. So so the work you guys do at microfishing is is pretty great and and you give us great tips and ideas um speaking of which uh what is your favorite hook for micro fishing?
1: <laughs> we've talked about this before oh, I no. like the tanago hook
0: <laughs> tanago yeah, I hate those things but and you get those from japan
1: um there's a guy here in the u s that imports them yeah um is it a dot com something like that Yep.
0: Yeah. And they're and they're totally cool looking hooks and they're wacky. But I mean I'm just for me, I go to a fly shop, buy a number thirty two hook, and that's all I'm gonna do. But yeah, like the Tanago. A lot of the guys like the Tanago hooks. And we have listeners in Japan uh who have been who have been sharing this story around too. So you've been popular even in Japan. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, and I I, I can't at the top of my head, let me just look it up real quick, I can tell you the name of one of our listeners who mentioned it to me. I'm going to our Patreon page. For those who don't know, we do fundraising for this show through Patreon, um, where listeners can give us a little bit of money for each show we do and helps us keep the show going. And one of our Patreon supporters is from Japan, and he mentioned it to me here. Let's see if I can find him. Koni You might know more than me. I'm going to find him. That was Hello Fish People. Oh, is that what you said? I thought you were saying someone's yeah. name. <laughs> say say it again without me interrupting you.
1: Konnichiwa, Tsuri no Hiro.
0: That's great. Have you been to Japan?
1: Yeah, I lived there for a while.
0: Oh, okay. it's His name is uh, Akito Dan. Have you heard of him? All right. Yeah. Anyway, no. no. So Akito Dan, he is supporting us on Patreon. He's giving us a dollar an episode, so we make about $4 a month off Akito Dan. But that's how we fund our show. If you want to fund the show, go to patreoncom nerds and give us a dollar and we'd be so happy. But uh man, so you got people all over the world following along with your species uh quests. What's your next big move?
1: Oh gosh. Yeah, it's important. I don't know.
0: You don't know. No plan.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of laying low right now. It's it's been a wild year with the with the Peru trip and
0: well, and now that I don't know, now that you're famous from NPR, I mean, the paparazzi probably been calling you every week. Um, did you get a raise at work because of that? Oh, yeah. I wish. <laughs> your mom they gone?
1: asked why I'm. Yeah, they asked why I'm out fishing.
0: Oh God! Have you ever um, lost a job because of fishing? No, no. no. I, I might be the only person I know who's done that. <coughs> Excuse me, wow, I've got a terrible cold, so I apologize. Um, so what was the most recent fish you caught in your quest?
1: Uh, as maybe three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, um, I had a free weekend. My options were sit on my ass on the couch and watch Netflix That sounds. Crazy. or no, or hit the road. Um, so I hit the road and drove down to Southeast Missouri. Um, and there's a spillway down there that gets a lot of, uh, Buffalo and suck. And uh, I've, I've been hunting for black buffalo for, gosh, five years now. Um, so I just sat there for two whole days in the same spot, sitting on the same rock, um, just throwing worms in the water. And I caught my black buffalo.
0: Oh, that's so cool. You know, one of the things that people don't realize with, with the whole species fishing thing is it's such a different way of of approaching the water. You know, bass fishermen are going to cast a lure, catch a bass, let it go, cast a lure, catch a bass, let it go, cast a lure, catch a bass, let it go. A species angler casts a a lure or or bait in the water, catches a fish, and then moves on to the next one. It's not a continuous, I'm going to catch 10 buffaloes. I got one, take a picture, I'm moving on. It's a whole different mindset, and I love it.
1: It, it's kind of nice because we really don't damage any fisheries doing that.
0: Uh, unless you're going for endangered species and you catch the only one left.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> that fish is kind of screwed if he's the only one left.
0: <laughs> Have you caught any endangered species?
1: Um, I've caught a few state endangered, but no federally endangered. And I honestly, I'd hope to keep it that way.
0: Yeah, I, I don't blame you. No, um, I I think I've accidentally eaten a endangered species, and it was delicious. Oh, no. Yeah. Have you heard of bridal shiders? No, but it sounds delicious. Uh, yeah, bridal shiners live in the Pequocket watershed in New Hampshire and they're extremely rare. And uh, I am sh- I'm 90% sure I ate one, but fishing game told me it was not one. I think they were just being nice to me. Then you're good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, but anyway, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a bridal shiner. <laughs> you never seen one of those? No. Uh, oh, it it looks like a young fall fish with giant eyes. I've
1: never seen a fall fish. You,
0: yeah, oh my god. Really? yeah they're the largest minnow in New Hampshire. They're one of our few native fishes we have here.
1: So, I should come to New Hampshire.
0: There's hope for you. If you come to New Hampshire uh, this winter, I'll take you ice fishing and we'll catch one through the ice.
1: Oh uh, uh,
0: yeah, if you come in the summertime i'll you can catch them anywhere. <laughs> That's easy,
1: not through the ice, not through the
0: ice in the summer. No, well, unless you have a big bucket of ice with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so anyway, uh where can people learn about microfishing? Uh,
1: just type Microfishing into Facebook and it'll come up. Um, we also have a website, microfishing.com. Um, but to be honest, it's really kind of a decentralized community. There's um, there's a few people running a Reddit, um, what do you call it, subreddit on microfishing. Um, roughfish.com, there's some folks there that are doing it. Um, so I don't know, just Google search and see what comes up.
0: Yeah. It's, it's super easy to find the Facebook uh, page I found to be very helpful when I was doing a lot of it. And, uh, you and Levi Kane have been two of my big people I've always looked into to like show me how to do this stuff. And whether I'm talking to you or reading the articles, you guys write that stuff. I always just find it uh, to be great stuff. So I love it. So, Thanks. dot microfishing.com. We have this team of fish nerds out in Oakland, California who work uh, uh, in, in, in an educational facility and they're called the F and West and they bumped into Joe uh, Temelari this week from Americanfishes.com and recorded a little bit of interview about his art project. So here
5: is that. My fellow nerds, I present to you Uber nerd Joe Temelari.
2: I don't actually remember where I met Peter. I'm guessing it was probably in San Francisco and back in about, uh, nine, either 1989 or 1990 when the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists met there. So Joe Tomilari
5: has been doing scientific illustration for decades. His work is part of Peter Moyle's books and you can find it just about anywhere. One of the places you can find his work is Americanfishes.com, his personal website. We're going to do a two-part series about Joe Tomalari's work. The first one today is about his scientific illustration. And the next part is going to be about his work in Mexico for an organization called Truchas Mexicanas. If you want a preview of it, go ahead and look up Truchas Mexicanas, T-R-U-C-H-A-S-M-E-X-I-C-A-N-A-S. And you will find out some really incredible stuff about the trout of northern Mexico. There are a whole lot of trout that I bet most of us didn't know about because, well, they're really, really out in the middle of nowhere. And Joe and a group of other scientists have gone out into the field and found a whole lot of new species. Very interesting stuff. Here's Joe.
2: Uh, I'm a scientific illustrator. I'm out of Kansas City. And I do what's called the scientific illustrations of fish. That would be uh, I draw from actual fish specimens, most of which I'll collect in the field and photograph for color and then preserve the specimen. And then I'll draw it uh, uh, as accurately as I can, I guess, scientifically, this, the correct number of scales and fin rays and the shape and all my illustrations. The original art is done in colored pencil. And, wow! And done on a uh, what you would call a cotton rag museum board. That's a hundred percent cotton rag.
5: It, I mean, it just looks. I, I've seen some of the images that look like real life animals. It's it's just crazy. The colors, like you get the sheens on them that look like they're they're actually just pictures. There are some I've seen, like the Sacramento perch. You get the purple shine to the scales that you just don't. You know, you don't even see that in a photo sometimes. Yeah, a lot so, of that.
2: You know, if you can if you can handle the fish uh, live, fresh out of the water, that the which I like to do, and get a good look at a number of specimens to find sort of an average look for the fish. Although although many times, uh, if you catch ten or fifteen, there's going to be you, the males and females are sometimes dimorphic. In other words, a male might be very colorful and the female very drab. So sometimes I'll do male and female so, um, because that would be really to having both illustrations would be instrumental to letting an angler or a scientist know what uh what to expect when they're out collecting
5: yeah no it's really it's really great to see that stuff um one of the good examples is uh the stuff you did with uh the movie you just put out called truchas mexicanas and um I'd like to get into that in a little bit and i but before we do i actually i'm curious i mean you're you're among the nerdiest fish guys i know um that's your, your a compliment. Level of nerddom it is, i i hope i hope you do take it as a compliment yeah I mean, i'm i'm really impressed with your level of nerdiness with i was nerd gonna fish, i so. was gonna
2: tell you that's a that's why i really belong on the show because yeah uh, no for i now i for instance i don't Actually, keep a life list of all the fish that I've seen alive, and some people do. But I've no, you thought just, you about just draw it. All of them, right? I've yeah. thought about it, so that makes me a fish nerd.
5: Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so I have a couple of I have a couple of questions related to the level of nerdiness that you that you are. Um, so my my first one is, what's your earliest fish or fishing memory?
2: Oh wow, that would probably probably be with my father when he took me out fishing uh i can remember specifically took me to a little urban lake that was maybe a couple miles from our house big 11 lake in kansas city kansas and we caught some black bullheads and brought them home and i started crying because he was talking about he was going to kill the fish and we're going to eat them and so he took the fish and uh so he said anyway, and he took him back to the lake and let him go again. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Little did you know they were dinner like two nights later. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Pro- probably not. He was pretty trustworthy. But uh, yeah, then well I've gone Graffich from that. Anything, so. I've gone from that to where everything that I draw is something that I really need to have the specimen of to to, to be exact and to be accurate. So, yeah, I've, I've how, did you, t-
5: how did you get into? Oh, go ahead.
2: How did I get started?
5: Yeah, that's that's where I was going. How would you actually get into fishy art?
2: Well, I was working on a master's degree at Fort Hayes State University in western Kansas in biology, generally with an emphasis in range management. And uh, some of the uh, other grad students and I, we had an old fishing club that uh, we called the Big Creek Fishing Club. And we used to fish in the creek on campus for fun, you know, drink beer and And catch bullheads and carp basically was what we, (laughs) was what we could catch. But, um, somebody wrote an article for the school newspaper said there weren't any fish in the creek. And, uh, Mm. being biologists, we decided, well, we knew there were fish in the creek. So we started sampling to see how many we could find. And I, we ended up over the whole length of the creek, which was probably 25 miles. I think we found 26 different species of fish in there. And, uh, we, cool. so we decided we, that we would do a little book for the university. And, mm-hmm. uh, my friend was going to photograph them. Of course, this is back in the early, mid eighties. And especially with the cameras of, of that, of that time, they were notoriously difficult to photograph fish with any degree of uh, consistency. And he was oh, it's, just, it's,
5: it's hard enough to do it nowadays with, with modern technology. My God.
2: Yeah. It takes a lot of, a lot of time and effort, but he, he my friend came to say, and he said, you know, he, he just couldn't do it, and, and and couldn't get the good photos that we wanted. So I just said, well, I'll, you know, I knew I had some art talent. I so said, I'll just draw them. And wow,
5: geez, that. wow, that's that's pretty impressive. That's and and now you have them all over the place. Where where? Uh, well, who have you done them for since then?
2: Oh wow, <laughs> they've been in uh, probably uh, safe to say probably more than a thousand different publications. And websites and advertising and different products they will be on, like, posters or greeting cards mm-hmm. or furniture, T-shirts. And I've done a lot <laughs> of s- state fish books. Um, well, fishes of Kansas, of course, but uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, uh, Alabama, um, the inland fishes of uh, California, Utah, uh, New Mexico, mm-hmm. Idaho. Mm-hmm. uh fishes of puget sound now that's just about to be published and fishes of yeah, Oregon yeah. And, and many other, many other wow, ones. Too. That's,
5: that's, that's a lot. Now, um, some of the nerds might, might know Karen Talbot, who's, uh, just recently gotten her anglers pint glass on the back of the Orvis catalog. Yay. Um, she, she's, she's doing it too. Um, it's pretty cool that she's, she's selling, she's selling these glasses. Um, have you ever have you ever had anything like that happen with your artwork? I mean, it seems like you you sell prints and stuff, but are 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 you mostly selling the prints themselves or how's how's that work? Yeah, okay. Uh, image I'm right just selling, like
2: yeah, I'll sell reproduction rights or fine art prints and all the mm-hmm. other products that um that might be found on um that have my fish on them. I don't sell them individually because it would just be it'd be too much work to to fulfill yeah, those yeah. sorts of orders. And
5: I understand that if if people want to get a copy of of some of your artwork, one way to do it is to go to your website and check out the contest. Tell us about your contest Oh,
2: the fish quiz. <laughs> oh, yeah. We started that back in uh 1999 when i first got a website yeah and been running it and
5: how how often do you how often do you do it you you uh oh i'll update it up a-
2: probably it's probably every 3 weeks generally i'll leave the fish up there for a couple weeks and uh-huh. see um how many correct answers i'll get and gen and usually the first yeah. one uh that gets in with the correct answer will be the winner but then i'll post all the all the people that had the Oh don't tell
5: all the nerds that they're going now they're all going to be rushing there to to <laughs>
2: Well. To, to get yeah, this but right. And, and I got to be honest,
5: the one that's up there right now looks like it's pretty easy. Uh,
2: yeah, well, that's okay, but see, I'm doing it a little different this way cuz one of the guys suggested I take all the correct answers and put them in a pool and then just pick one uh-huh. out at random. So, yeah,
5: I have a feeling I have a feeling you might get a lot of entries this time around. Winner gets choice of any 8x10 print or 50% off any order according to the website right here. Yeah.
2: Which is how do people find you? Uh americanfishes.com.
0: Uh Ben, you write a lot, don't you?
2: Well, I've got a blog that I haven't worked
1: on in a while, but yeah.
0: All right. Well, I I've been doing some writing and November is National Novel Writers Month. Ooh. Yeah, and I am I've been working on a book for years and never finished it because I don't have time. Uh, but I thought it would be fun for National Novel Writers Month to get together with other fish nerds and put together a, a fishing book, like crowdsourcing a book. So what I'm trying to do is get people to contribute a 300 or more, uh, word story to the, um, to our new book for the National Novel Writers Month. And so the theme this month is fishing adventures. And so any adventure-type fishing story you want to include, you can. In fact, Ben, your story of getting uh, hurt would be a great
1: story. The, uh, the dumbass
0: story. The, it's perfect. It's got a title and everything. I might just transcribe that. But if you, mm. want, if you wanted to write it yourself and make it better, you could. And so we're looking for uh, Fish Nerds listeners to uh, contribute to this process. We need 30 stories to make this really good. So that's one a day. And we've already, it's a third right now recording of three stories already. So I need what 27 more stories. And so if you want to contribute, just write your story and send, send it to clay at fishnerds.com and we will edit it and we will put it in our book. You'll get a free ebook copy, um, and some accolades, and you'll get to be able to say you're a published author and uh, we'll put it out. Ooh. We'll put it out at the end of the month or. Not the end of the month, at the end of the editing process, which could take more than a month. <laughs> um, but we've got, uh, a bunch of people helping work on the editing of this book and laying it out, making it pretty. So anyone with a fish story that has a little bit of adventure and danger in it, uh, is appropriate for this first fish nerds crowd sourced book for national, ni- national novel writers month. Ben, I would love it if you contribute a story. Yeah, I'll
1: do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, roughly how many words again? Uh, more than 300.
0: More than 300. Yeah. So 300, by the way, is nothing. Uh, but Eddie, there's no limit, although we don't really want your whole book. <laughs> it's basically we're looking for a bunch of short stories, something you could take to the bathroom with you and just like read a fun story while you're there. Depends
1: on how long you're in the bathroom.
0: Well, yeah. Again, it's <laughs> so for you, it might be longer because you're in pain. <laughs> but for those of us who don't get hurt fishing as much, uh, maybe we get out of there quicker. So anyway, uh, send those to Clay at com. Find me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and uh, ask me questions. And I'll help you get it together. If you're a terrible writer and you want to contribute a story and you want to record an audio story, uh, just record that and send that to me and I will transcribe that and edit that down and make that work. Um, and, but the idea is to get as many contributors as we can and then it works. If it's just me doing it, it doesn't work. So it'll be a ton of fun. All right, time for some news. Fish in the news. First one's from Nat Geo. And uh, we know that Nat Geo is a uh, hard-hitting uh, news source these days. So with uh, big hits last year, like uh, the Ice Folds, Ice Folds TV show, you know that anything they do is going to be good. <laughs> so, quality. Quality. I, I have a little bit of a uh, um, bone to pick with them because I signed a contract to be on their TV show last year, and they didn't use me. So... Oh no! I had a two-year contract with Nat Geo and nothing. So those bastards.
1: Did you rake in the big ones?
0: Uh, nothing. They didn't. They didn't use me. So I got. I got nothing. All right. Two-headed sharks keep popping up, and nobody knows why. This is the story. All right. This is by Joshua Raplern. Uh, two-headed sharks may sound like a figment of the big screen, but they exist and more are turning up worldwide, scientists say. A few years ago, off Florida, fishermen hauled in a bull shark whose uterus contained a two-headed fetus. In 2008, another fisherman discovered a two-headed bull shark embryo in the Indian Ocean, and in 2011, a study described conjoined twins discovered in blue sharks caught in the Gulf of California and northwestern Mexico. Blue sharks have produced the most recorded two headed embryos because they carry so many babies, up to 50 at a time. Now, Spanish researchers have identified an embryo of an Atlantic sawtail sh- cat shark with two heads, according to a new study in the Journal of Fish and Biology. While raising sharks for human health research in the laboratory, I can't say it, in the laboratory. A team noticed the unusual embryo in a see-through shark egg. The cat-shark embryo is not your average two-headed beast. It's the first such specimen known from an aviparous shark species. That's a shark that lays eggs. Mm. Yeah, you learned new word tonight. Uh, researchers have opened the egg to study the specimen, and study leader Valentin Sanscoma says it's unknown whether the deformed animal would have survived. Uh, I can tell you why it didn't survive. They cut the egg open. So uh, (laughs) it's not that... That doesn't help. It does not help. Uh, And anyway, so um, those eggs were not exposed to any kind of infectious chemicals or radiation, which is kind of a natural um, problem. But wild sharks' mouth formations could come from a variety of factors, including viral infections, metabolic disorders, pollution, or a dwindling gene pool due to overfishing, which leads to inbreeding and thus genetic abnormalities. Uh, the question I would have is, how many fish would you have to take out of a population before you've limited your gene pool enough where you have these deformities?
1: Yeah, the ocean's a big place. I don't know if I buy that one.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. For another recent study, marine scientist Nicola uh, Emin examined two such specimens: a small ice, small eye smooth, small eye smooth hound shark and a blue shark found by fishermen off Venezuela's Margarita Island the animals which would not have survived are the first two-headed sharks found in the Caribbean Sea according to her research so the question is do we blame overfishing um or do we blame something else what do you think
1: digital photography
0: i, I would blame anyone with a digital camera yeah I- I- and that's actually if you if you read through the whole article um, there's not a lot of research on this. It seems like a completely random phenomenon. And the um, the scientists kind of declare that it seems to be more people are just noticing this phenomenon than, than it actually happening more often. I think you're exactly right. Did, were you being facetious or did you mean it?
1: No, I mean it. Yeah. You're exactly but right. in all honesty, I hope the Sharknado people are paying attention and work this into their story.
0: Oh my gosh. I would I would I would finally watch one of those. If it was two headed shark nato, I'm in.
1: Yeah. I'm totally
0: in on uh, it. have you ever caught any um, any fish with deformities?
1: Uh maybe just a goofy spine or something, but nothing crazy. <laughs>
0: you know, it's goofy spine the scientific term for
1: <laughs> Yeah, kind of curvy. Curvy spine. I love it. What's really cool is when you get a fish and they've got a very clear just bite taken out of their back. Oh, I've seen that. And uh, they're just doing fine. You know, you'll see bluegill like that sometimes.
0: Totally too. I, I've not seen it from bluegill, but I've seen it in other fish. And I've seen other fish too with just like teeth marks in their sides. But it's amazing. Some of those sharp teeth uh, fishes, they just take a snap, a quick bite out of fish. What kind of fish are eating the bluegills out where you are?
1: Um, up north, it's probably pike. Okay.
0: Uh, That's surprising that Bluegill get away from that. (laughs) That's amazing. Next story. This is from the Washington Post. We're going to get political now, Ben. I hope you're right. This is serious. This is serious. Well, you know, this this show is being released the night before the biggest election of the year. Some might say the biggest of our lifetime, but they always seem to say that, so we'll have to see how that works out. But this is a story from the Washington Post, and it's about the uh, Hillary Clinton email scandal. Oh, God. You might be asking, what does this have to do with fish? So this Washington Post, the story behind the funniest email Hillary Clinton has ever seen. Um, By the way, before I read this, I'm going to tell you that if this is the funniest email she's ever seen, uh, Hillary does not get enough spam from my dad because my dad still sends jokes as emails.
1: Or Bill. I bet Bill sends jokes. I
0: bet he still does, too. Yeah. Uh, while, <laughs> while combing through the most recent Hillary Clinton email dump, a certain seemingly non-political but potentially highly controversial message stands out. The email was sent to both Jake Sullivan, one of her top advisors, and Richard Verma, the former Assistant Secretary of State uh, for Legislative Affairs, and it's brief. The body of the email is five words long. It reads, where are we on this? The subject, meanwhile, says only gefelte fish. That's it. That's the story.
1: That's a code word,
0: for it, sure. It is. Uh, now, for those... Who, do, you, do you know what gefelte fish is? Uh,
1: it's some Jewish people eat, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Gefelte fish, for those unaware, is a quintessentially Jewish food made from ground white fish, onion, egg whites, and a few other things. Now, it's interesting that this article has it as white fish because traditionally it's not made from white fish. It's made from, do you know what it's made from?
1: Mm, how about
0: carp? Carp or pike. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. In fact, uh, Dave and I, in our quest to catch all the fish in New Hampshire, made gefilte fish. And it tastes a lot like uh, fish meatloaf. <laughs> that sounds okay. It actually wasn't bad. Uh, it wasn't great, but I had no idea what I was doing. when I my first try at making it, but I can imagine eating it. Now, I've seen it in the stores. Have you seen it in the stores? Uh, in jars, maybe? Yeah, jars, and it's packed with fish jelly. And that jelly is actually made from the fish slime. Oh. Yeah, and that uh, is a lot less appealing. So, um, but yeah, so uh, that's the big scandal this week with uh, Hillary Clinton. So if that impacts your vote, um, you know, make sure you, you make a note of that as you go to the polls um, to vote. Hillary Clinton is not sure where she is with gefilte fish. Where do, where do you fall with gefeltafish? fish?
1: Um, I honestly want to know where our political leaders are on it.
0: Yeah, I mean I would I would think um any inclusive leader would be supportive of Cafel to Fish.
1: They'd make some progress at least. They
0: would. Well we don't know the context of 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 that email, but um I I think she was just being very cautious on it. And she might have actually not known what it was. Mm. But I think being an international leader and close with Israel, you probably should know it. But I, I am actually in favor and supportive of Gefelte fish, and uh, I think anyone eating eating carp uh, wins.
1: <laughs> so, I agree. Yeah.
0: So, and, in fact, now my challenge to you now is to go out and buy a jar of that and taste it and report back. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes that's a new. Uh and in the effort of being fair, we can't do a Hillary Clinton fish story and not do a uh, Donald Trump story. And there's actually a, a really big trend right now uh in the Trump universe. Uh fans of Donald Trump are are have a new hobby. It's called putting Donald Trump's mouth on a puffer fish. And this is from com. And apparently, um, you can Google this. Google Donald Trump and pufferfish, and there are thousands of pictures of his mouth on a pufferfish. Uh, which I, I think if in the debates that was the face I was seeing, then I would have been swayed to agree with him more than I did. Because pufferfish are cute. They are super cute, and Donald Trump has a great mouth for pufferfish. Like, <laughs> it's surprisingly cute. <laughs> so,
1: that's, I'm, I'm staring at the pictures right now, and I'm just having a hard time choosing words.
0: <laughs> they're ridiculous, uh, but uh, it's 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 way fun. I highly recommend everyone go over and uh, and go to On Sizzle or just Google Donald Trump and puffer fish, and there are just hundreds of money in it. And just go and check them all out, and have a good time with it. But uh, I, you know, I, I think it's neat in the fishing world uh, how diverse the fish are and how diverse the people are. I know that our fans. Uh, some of them love Hillary, some of them love Donald and some love libertarians and some hate politics and we love all of our people and we're not gonna dig too deep into this issue. <laughs> so we're gonna a leave, good idea. leave it right there and I think um I think call it good. And hey that that's it, man. We've wrapped up we've done the whole show. All right. So that's it. You've listened to a few fish nerds when you could have been fishing.
1: We'd like to thank our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on fishing quests, and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. If you would like to support Fish Nerds, you can go to patreon.com and search for Fish Nerds and help us crowdfund this podcast.
0: Special thanks to Joseph Zydelski, uh, Joe Tommeler, and the F West, and of course, Big fat thank you to um dumbass ben cantrell from (laughs) microfishing.com
1: occasional
0: dumbass (laughs) and until next time follow the
1: code of the fish nerd spawn early and often
0: and avoid three months of spring attach
1: and swim against the current every chance you get